Haven from Kinexus. I'm reading a blog post written by our Cade Jansen titled Bottom-Up Improvement, Finding Strength in Numbers. There is power in bottom-up employee improvement, but it doesn't get widely or easily embraced by organizations, meaning missed opportunities for improvement. That was the topic I discussed. Me, uh, Mark Graven, the reader here, uh, discussed in a recent Kinexus webinar titled Strength in Numbers, Improving from the Bottom Up. It was uh, hosted by our CEO and co-founder, Dr. Greg Jacobson. I am, in my role of Kinexus, the VP of Improvement and Innovation Services. So about the webinar, here are some of the high points of what I presented. The top to bottom pyramid. The bottom of bottom up references the typical pyramid illustration used to visualize the management structure of an organization. That pyramid usually places the CEOs and executives at the top point of the pyramid, which then gets wider through the many management levels before the base layer of frontline staff at the bottom. To combat the hierarchical and potentially insulting placement of staff at the bottom of the pyramid, some organizations try to invert the diagram so that frontline staff and sometimes even customers are labeled at the top. As I said in the webinar, you know, we can draw whatever shapes we like. If the organization just changes the drawing but doesn't change the mindset, then that's gonna get people discouraged. That's not going to lead to a culture of continuous improvement. Top-down improvement falls in line with command and control leadership, I explained in the webinar. Command and control leadership holds the notion that executives are the smartest employees in the organization, and therefore, they make the decisions. And if employees would just do what they were told, then the organization would have superior results. So it's a problem-solving problem. As I said in the webinar, executives need to help frame strategy and direction for the organization. That's important. But when the how gets communicated or pushed in a top-down way of how do we solve problems, how do we improve performance, we can often get into a lot of trouble, or I would add these top-down executives do. I gave the example of a piece of carpet that was installed in a hospital that was embarking on their lean journey about 10 years ago. To solve the problem of noise in the hallway, disrupting patient satisfaction at night, Executives had a piece of carpeting um, installed all through the hallway without even telling the manager on the floor. And it wasn't about the looks, it was about reducing noise. It was an attempt to improve patient satisfaction. And those are important goals that can and should be defined the goals in a top-down way. It's cascaded through the organization. But what makes a culture of continuous improvement happen is when we challenge a team or employees to solve a problem to figure out something on their own. Now, what's worse, there was another top-down mandate that said employees had to roll portable computers around the unit, which was made more difficult by the new carpet. And this meant one top-down mandate conflicted with a different top-down mandate. When the hospital looked at the patient satisfaction data for the hallway, for the unit, satisfaction did improve, but it did so a month before the carpet was installed, thanks to several other smaller improvements that were already implemented by frontline staff. In the end, the carpet had no visible effect on patient satisfaction looking at the data. So let's talk about the 80-20 principle. Data proving that bottom-up improvement has more of an impact on success is available. For those in organizations that would need to be shown research that proves bottom-up improvement works, I recommend the book, The Idea-Driven Organization, Unlocking the Power in Bottom-Up Ideas. It was written by Alan G. Robinson and Dean M. Schroeder. Robinson and Schroeder call this uh, idea of 80% impact, the 80-20 principle, but they found it to be 
um, true and, and visible and present in a lot of different types of organizations. They started collecting data whenever they came across it and found it to be consistent in services, manufacturing, healthcare, and government, lots of different settings. So they have consistent findings that bottom-up improvement is powerful. This doesn't mean it's easy. You know, we talk about change in the organization, change of any type, even personal change. Something being factually correct doesn't lead to easy acceptance. What's rational, what's logical, what's factually true doesn't necessarily automatically easily happen in an organization. That's why organizational change is so difficult. Looking at Kinexus customer statistics, I explained in the webinar that one in three, one out of three improvements made by Kinexus customers has a financial impact. In addition, 54% of all improvements impact quality, 13% of all improvements increase the safety of staff and or customers, patients, and 54% of improvements increase staff and customer satisfaction. So if people think bottom-up ideas are nice to have, we might try to show them data that shows small ideas can actually have a big impact. But again, that being factually true doesn't lead to easy acceptance, as I said in the webinar. So why don't we have more bottom-up improvement? Well, the reason for not having more bottom-up improvement is uh, not the fault of employees. It's, uh, it's more a factor of the system or even with the leadership mindset. Leaders might think that uh, improvement is the job of the leader. So we might present data that shows bottom-up improvement is powerful. Then the leaders might say, okay, I'm gonna tell them to participate in improvement. And I think, all right, well, let's look up uh, dictionary definitions of irony, telling people to participate in bottom-up improvement in a top-down way. That sounds pretty ironic to me. So why are leaders pushing improvement from the top down? The reason leaders may be pushing improvement from the top down is because of a natural reflex called the writing reflex. And that's writing, R-I-G-H-T, ING. This reflex is the desire to fix or write what seems wrong with people or an organization and to set them on a better course by directing or telling them what to do. Unfortunately, while natural, uh, this approach leads to defensiveness, which is also natural. The core textbook that discusses the writing reflex is it's called Motivational Interviewing by William R. Miller and Stephen Rolnick. Motivational interviewing is an approach that comes from counseling, specifically addiction counseling, that aims to work with people and help them decide, help them decide to move from ambivalence to action. So people tend to feel bad when approached with the writing reflex and causing them to feel bad doesn't make them want to change. We think we're doing the right thing, but it turns out to be counterproductive. Telling people what to do often leads them to think about why they can't do it, which again is counterproductive. So we need to shift from wanting to be right. Feeling right about something um, doesn't really feel good compared to helping people change. It's not as effective as doing other things that would help people change. Another resource on motivational interviewing that I referenced in the webinar is uh, another book called MI Lead, Motivational Interviewing for Leadership. And for those interested in learning more about motivational interviewing uh, for their lean efforts, I recommend um, reading that first. It's a, a, a less clinical book. In that book, um, the authors reference a 2014 research study that proved human beings are hardwired to prefer their own ideas over those produced by others. Quoting the MI Lead book, um, I explain that uh, what's called an evoking style elicits information about the what, why, how, and when from people instead of imparting that information onto the person or telling them what to do. 
Some examples I gave of evoking questions included, what do you think we could implement? What possible improvements are important to you? Why is it important to you to improve? Well, questions like this end up being more effective and they fall into what's described as the spirit of MI or the spirit of motivational interviewing. And that reminds me of what's been described as the spirit of Kaizen or the spirit of Lean. And the spirit of MI includes four things. One, collaboration between the practitioner and the client. Two, evoking or drawing out the client's ideas about change. Three, emphasizing the autonomy of the client. And four, practicing compassion in the process. Um, as I said in the webinar, we might have something that's correct and awesome and helpful. But if we push those helpful, good ideas on others, we shouldn't be surprised when they seem resistant. We try to figure out what to do to create an environment where people choose to change. So um, this article, this blog post is just a summary of uh, many ideas around motivational interviewing. Uh, for more information, uh, we recommend you watch the webinar in full. You can find it on the Kinexus website under our webinar library. You can also find it on our YouTube channel if you search for Kinexus. Um, so again, this has been Mark Graben um, with the high degree of difficulty of reading a post about myself written by Cade Jansen. Um, but thank you for listening to the Kinexus podcast.